Welcome to Education Talks, I'm David Burke. Andrew McGeehan is Director at Trident Training and Consulting. Andrew worked in higher education for 12 years before embarking on a new journey and starting his own business. Based in Singapore, Andrew works with organisations and schools that are interested in enhancing their inclusion efforts and creating environments where people can thrive and be themselves. So Andrew, welcome to Education Talks. It's uh, great to have you on the show. Yes, thank you for inviting me. And uh, here we are in Singapore. Yes. Beautiful, sunny Singapore. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's been raining quite a lot here uh, in the past couple of months, actually, like three months, I think. It's good that we found a, a nice dry spot here. Um, so can you just give us a little bit of a, I guess, a walk through your career pathway up to where you are today? Yeah. So I actually had started um, when I was in uh, undergrad. So I went to undergrad in California in the US and I did not have a really clear path of what I wanted to do. So I changed my major a lot. Um, but through that, I was working in student life as an RA doing support for the students. So when I left undergrad, actually, I went to grad school initially for art history, which was my undergrad degree. So I went to grad school for art history. After one semester, I basically hated it, realized that Art history was not the long-term career that I wanted, so I quit grad school, which was a super hard decision to make, and then I moved back to California. And basically, I met up with some folks who I had been working with at my undergrad, who sort of told me, oh, you're always good at student life, um, you know, maybe you should consider that kind of education career path. Um, and I literally like had no, one, no idea what to do, so I was like, all right, sure. So I applied for this job um, in Maine uh, at Bates College on the other side of the country. I got it and then I told myself, all right, I'm either going to do this for a year and then move it to something else or I'm going to love it and then I'll end up getting my sort of master's in education and I ended up loving it. So then I went to grad school back on the other side of the country again um, in Seattle and then did my master's in student development. And so then my career has always been focused on working with college students, being in higher ed um, and I've bounced around to a few different schools sort of after that. So it was a bit... I guess unconventional in the sense that I really did not intend to do anything really education related. Um, I really thought, oh, I'm gonna be an art historian, I'm gonna do this, but it just turned out that was not the path for me that I found when I was in grad school. Okay, and, um, and then what brought you to Singapore? How did you end up here? Yeah, um, so randomly, I always feel like people ask that and it's like, is there a big story? But there really isn't, actually. I, I went on, um, there's an education program called Semester at Sea. So uh, students sort of sail around the world and you take classes on the ship and you stop in different countries along the way. So I was a staff member on Semester at Sea. I was a residence director and it's only a one semester gig. So I basically quit my job to go on Semester at Sea. Came back, I was living in Massachusetts then, um, fully unemployed, just looking for work and then uh, I had actually ended up getting an interim job for about like three months because there was an immediate need. Um, so I put my job search on pause. And then while I had that interim job, I noticed this job at Yale and US, um, which is where I was working previously. And um, I just applied for it and got it. So it wasn't like, you know, it was really basic. It was like, oh, I just saw the job listing. Uh, my partner at the time, I was like, should we move to Singapore? Um, and he was like, yeah, yeah, why not? <laughs> I'm like, all right. And then we just came. Um, and I actually felt really horrible because I had really, really 100% promised the interim job I would make it through the term, but I actually didn't because then once I got the job, they were like, all right, we need you here on July 1st. And I think this was like April 30th or something. So I just quit immediately wow. because I was like, well, I only have two more months in the U.S. 
I have to pack up my entire life. I have to tell everyone I'm leaving. Um, yeah, so that's how I ended up here. So to a certain extent, it was random. I wasn't trying to come to Asia specifically or Singapore specifically, but I did want that like international experience after coming off semester at sea. And honestly, it just happened to be lucky. Like if I'd gotten a different job before seeing that listing, yeah. I probably wouldn't have ended up here. I mean, it's a great place to be. You're quite happy. Um, how, how long have you been here? Uh, almost eight years. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So nice it's been place quite to call home. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's hard to, Singapore is always changing, I think. So I think yeah. there's always, uh, you know, when I first came here, it feels a lot different than it does now. And of course now I'm doing something totally different. Um, but I'm pretty happy here. I think as there's been like a really big exodus the past sort of two years, mm -hmm. I think I am in that place, like probably many foreigners are thinking like, what's my next move? Do I, you know, how long do we want to stay? Yeah. What does that sort of look like? Um, I applied for PR once and didn't get it. So, uh, so I'm still at sort of the, the mercy of needing to get my EP um, yeah. each time as well. Um, yeah, but I think Singapore is like a really easy place to live, um, a really nice place, centrally located. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's been an overall good experience. And of course, many international schools here in Singapore. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what you're doing right now, doing your own thing. Yeah. You can share about that. Yeah, so Trident was actually suggested to me by somebody else. So I, I don't know if I have, I'm sure I do have lots of agency, but sometimes things always feel a bit random. Um, I had done a training for Maine and US campus. I was at Yale and US. And afterwards, the Dean of Students at the time um, or the vice provost, someone, something, um, had said to me like, oh, well, it's too bad we can't pay you for this because you already work for NUS. But, you know, if you didn't, if you had like an outside company, like I think people would be really interested in this kind of thing. It was around um, processes for uh, responding to sexual misconduct cases on campus, how to support the students involved and, and develop a really uh, transparent and thoughtful process. And so she said that to me and I was like, huh, well, what if I did have my own company? And then that sort of started sort of the seed planting. Uh, Trident did not emerge until kind of three or four years after that, partly due to COVID. Um, yeah, so I just thought, let me try this. It seemed like the types of things that I was doing previously in my career and at Yale and US were very prevalent in sort of cultural consciousness in Singapore at that time. Um, so I thought it would be a good thing to sort of move into. So now I just posted on my Instagram today, we're two years now, just about two years that China has been in existence. Fantastic. And yeah. thinking of um, working in say one institution versus having a, a an impact across many, uh, which is more satisfying. I mean, do you, is it, is it better to, for that big impact <laughs> or is it better to be in that school? I mean, it's, yeah. I think for me personally, I will say I actually do find it more fulfilling to be in the same place and sort of see how the change continues to happen. Yeah, yeah. So I think everything is sort of double-edged sword. Like I think there's a real niceness to seeing how a place changed. And I think there's also a huge benefit to going into a place where you don't know anyone, you also have no stake in the like politics or the social connection. So you can really be like, this is what you need to do yeah. for the students. Like, or really challenge people on like their, um, I don't know, on maybe their like biases or, or what they're missing or their sort of, uh, you know, uh, what should I say? They're like uh, reasons that they block things, uh, defer mechanisms, as I say, uh, yes. deflection mechanisms. So like, I find that that is also quite fun. Um, I do sometimes struggle with thinking like, did anything change after I left? So <laughs> I try and stay in touch with my clients to see like what's happened next or what else do you need? Um, Cause I think a lot of what I do 
is more of a springboard mm. than it is an end product. Yep. Um, so then I hope that they take it forward. Whether they do or not, I'm not actually sure. Um, so I think there's benefits uh, to both for sure. And of course, like, you know, positive as well. Like if there's clients that you don't mesh with very well or that you don't feel like, you know, the school seems actually that interested in doing stuff, then you don't have to work with them again. Because um, yeah. <laughs> when you work with people all the time, it's like, all right, we're better for worse, we're stuck with each other. So we have to find a way to um, yeah. move this forward. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Andrew, so what exactly does Trident do for an organization? Yeah, so I like to think that I can do it all, but there are three main focuses that I have. So one is around sexual misconduct and sexual harassment in any organization, including schools. Um, and that includes like policy writing, um, thinking of process development, how do we respond to something many places have sort of older processes or, or they're not very thoughtful, they're not very uh, attuned to what the people involved are going through, um, as well as a lot of training, either for students, staff, HR, anyone that focuses on how do we support um, survivors and victims and what they've gone through. Um, I also focus on how do we support alleged perpetrators, how do we do reintegration into, you know, if you suspend a student for sexual misconduct, but they come back next term, how do we bring them back into the fold? How do we show them that you know, you're still part of the community while also holding them accountable for the negative harms that they've, uh, that they've uh, inflicted on somebody else? So that, that's one part. Then the second part is DNI, um, which I think is sort of the main thing people ask me to do. So for schools, um, I get asked to do a lot around um, supporting LGBTQ and gender diverse students and what does it look like to, again, write policy, have the skills training, teachers respond to microaggression, um, and how do we sort of create these environments where students can thrive. So I do that a lot, um, but also stuff around allyship and belonging and power and privilege and you know, sort of semi-basic DNI um, things with some deeper dives into a few areas. And then the third thing that I do, um, which is connected to the first two, is around restorative justice and restorative practices in education um, and thinking about how can we shift systems of discipline to be more restorative in nature, which focuses more on accountability, um, it focuses more on harm, it focuses less on um, was this or that specific policy broken and more on like, did I do something that hurt you? And if so, you can have a say in what accountability should look like for your uh, needs in terms of repairing our relationship. Maybe you don't want to, so what you want is just for me to stay away from you um, or whatever that looks like. And so I'm working with schools to sort of help them see that that has better outcomes for students. Yes. Um, and it also provides a lot more agency for all parties. And it sort of shifts away from the idea that like, oh, a student pushed someone down during recess, they have to be suspended. Um, then that there's other ways that we can look at this that are not strictly punitive. So those are my three main areas that I do within Trident, both on a training workshop side and on a consulting um, sort of policy development side as well. Okay, so what are some of the current challenges in educational settings? Yeah, I think what I notice when I go into schools, I think one of the biggest challenges is that people just don't know what to do. I think especially because I get asked mostly with schools to do sort of DNI related things. I think people have a sense that it's important they have a sense of what it is. And then when I'm like, so list me out five ways in which you actively pursue inclusion for students, a lot of schools are like, huh, I don't know, right? And a lot of times it's because people actually don't know. It's not necessarily that people are, you know, intentionally not doing something. Um, it's that sometimes there's this thought process that like, well, as long as I'm treating the students similar, as long as I'm not actively 
discriminating against students or I'm not witnessing students actively discriminate against each other, then we're doing something good. Mm. Um, whereas my take is more like, that's fine, but that's not enough. Like you need to be doing something active yep. in order to be pulling students in. So I think that's a challenge. I think with international schools in particular, I hear a lot of sort of lack of clarity around what are the rules in Singapore, what can be talked about, what can be not, because it often involves a lot of foreigners. There's concern around push too hard, what happens to our work pass or our school standing. So I, I think that is a challenge for people in terms of um, figuring out what can be done. Um, and then I would say the third biggest challenge is realistically that in any school setting, there's just too much to do. Like when I work with people, it often is like, okay, we're going to do our best to find two hours at a time when teachers are available and and we'll just sort of see. So that, you know, when you think about DNI stuff, there's lots of safeguarding things that need to happen. There's mental health, there's managing parent relationships, there's actual teaching um, and curriculum and grading and infrastructure and COVID. Like there's so many different things that I think that's a huge challenge um, that a lot of what I do, I think it hasn't quite crossed into sort of common consciousness that it's a need to have. I think for many folks, it feels like a nice to have. Like, oh, if we do restorative justice, that's great. Do we need to do it? Nah, because we're probably okay with our current system mm. as is. So sometimes I'm trying to like create the problem in a sense or help sort of see what that is. But I think that's a huge challenge. I mean, literally every school I've has been like, we have no time, you know, we've stretched resources. You know, when we have professional development day, we have 500 things on our list that we want to get teachers through. And though we want to also get through this, it's hard to prioritize. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's a huge challenge. And I experienced that when I worked in higher ed too. Like I know that any, any education setting is basically like everyone needs to do everything. Yep. Everyone's doing three jobs. Um, mm -hmm. And it's quite hard, I think, to even make the mental space as well to learn new things and then change what you're doing in the classroom if you already feel quite well established. Yeah. And what are some of the common barriers that schools face when trying to implement these inclusion programs? Yeah, I think, uh, so from the schools I've worked with um, and sort of talking with other people in the field, um, it is sad to say that one of the biggest barriers is senior leadership and getting buy-in. Um, something that comes up a lot is that certain things are perceived as risky, mm -hmm. um, especially when it comes to thinking about supporting LGBTQ students, mm -hmm. supporting trans students, um, in Singapore context, it's seen as sort of a, a risk or that there could be pushback either from um, a board, all schools seem to have these mysterious boards, um, as well as parents. I think because so many of these schools are so multicultural, multi-ethnic, pluralistic, there's so many different identities. I think people do sort of get stuck in feeling like there's so much to know, there's so much to learn, and I wanted all my students individually to begin with, but then I also need to try and understand what's their cultural background. Yes. So I think it's sort of that time and just also that that kind of understanding mm. doesn't just happen yes. overnight. So yeah. I think it takes a while. I wonder if too the, the diversity itself within the school does sort of make school leaders err on the side of caution and as a result are much, uh, not say resistant, but slower to engage with or how, worrying yeah. how to tackle this sort of process. Yeah, no, I think that's very mm. true, yeah. Mm. I think there's also the sense, I experienced this at Yale and US too, there's also a sense that like, well, our student body is super diverse, so like, what's the problem? <laughs> like, we must be doing something right, right? And so of course that sort of is saying like, yes, diversity can be numbers, Yes. inclusion meaning what, right? Yes. And how do we care for all of those students? Like at Yale and US, uh, they're very proud of saying we have students from X amount of countries. That's great. Mm. But when we only have 
two students from this country and three students from this country yeah. and one student from this country. We also have to be attuned that like, yeah. they're also here being the only. Yeah. And maybe they're being microaggressed by students who know nothing about Brazil or Argentina or India mm -hmm. or wherever. Mm -hmm. And so we also have to take special care of that. So it's really great. I think those are really wonderful learning environments. Mm -hmm. It's just, you can't, in my mind, you can't just throw it all together and be like, yeah. all right, it's going to work. Yeah. You have to massage it a little bit and then yeah. also be okay with the conflict. Yes. Like, yeah, the conflict's going to happen. That's great. Yeah. We just need administrators and teachers who can help students process that conflict in a way that's healthy and that repairs relationships instead of like breaking it down further. Yes. You've sort of got to be the conductor of the orchestra, right? Rather than just have them all get together and play, you've got to yeah. uh, bring everyone along together. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's a great analogy, I think. So what kind of specific skills and knowledge do teachers need to have if they want to implement uh, strategies in, the, in their classroom? Yeah, I think one really big skill I think will really be sort of empathy and understanding for what the students are going through. I think that's something that most of us don't really understand certain issues unless we have some sort of personal connection to it. Um, and sometimes it's hard to think of empathy as a skill, um, which is why maybe sometimes the knowledge is also like, what does the research say? Like, what organization has written about the experience of, you know, racial minority students in Singapore or the experience of um, students who are speaking English not as their first language uh, or their home language in Singapore and what does that look like? So I think that empathy piece is really important and trying to understand what those students might be experiencing. I think also trying to tap into like our own experience as a student or a younger mm -hmm. person. Um, and I think now sometimes we think, oh, I have it all figured out, but you know, we also didn't. And sometimes we unfairly sort of place that on students. I know it's something I used to do a lot, right? I even do it on adults now in my sessions sometimes like, oh, shouldn't you know that? Um, and then I remember, wait, maybe I don't. Um, yeah, and then I think knowledge of the resources both inside and outside of the school is something that will really help teachers be able to connect students to different um, areas of support that maybe they could utilize better or that are more nuanced for them. Um, or also just that the student would prefer more because it's not connected to the school setting. Um, the other thing I think, I don't know if it's necessarily knowledge, but I think having a really strong network um, inside an institution and possibly out is really important. Mm -hmm. I think, again, we all tend to think, oh, I can support any student through anything because I care about all of them. But sometimes sometimes it's a very hard lesson to learn. Like, the student doesn't want to talk to you. Yeah, like, yeah. And it's not because we're not nice or whatever. You know, I would have lots of students coming to me um, when I worked at Yale and US to talk about queer and trans issues because they wanted to talk to someone that they knew mm -hmm. was part of the community and yeah. that and that knew about these things. And they just didn't want to have to go through sort of that process um, with someone who didn't. So it's not that there weren't other people in the school who couldn't help them, of course there were, but they preferred that sort of connection. So I think for each of us having that robust network so mm -hmm. I can say, oh, let me refer you to this person, um, you know, because they have a similar experience related to whatever it is, learning disability, growing up as a racial minority, being trans, uh, moving to a foreign country, it could be anything. Mm. So I think that network is something that's super important to cultivate as well. And sometimes we get nervous about like learning more about our colleagues in this way. So I think having ways to also learn about each other in a way that isn't like tokenistic, like tell me all your identities so that I know yeah. who to send to you. Um, but figuring out how we can do that in an organic way, I think really benefits the students. Um, and it also helps us develop empathy for each other as well, mm -hmm. which I think is also a key component that is often missed um, with the focus being so much on the students that yeah. in education, we often forget about ourselves um, yes. and our own relationships, like sort of across colleagues and throughout uh, the organization as well. Yeah. 
Okay, in what areas are schools in Singapore thriving and where are perhaps some areas that some more work needs to be done? I think from what I have seen and also from what schools have reported to me, um, I did a big session on sort of cultural iceberg at, at a school earlier this year. I think schools are thriving in that sort of top part of the cultural iceberg, thinking about, let's talk about um, food and mm. clothes and uh, appreciation um, and sort of tolerance. I think moving in that direction, schools are doing a pretty good job. Um, and I think many schools are comfortable focusing on what I would sort of call more like safe topics, um, which I think are also the sort of broadly in Singapore sort of more safe topics. Um, so things around sort of like racial harmony or talking about cultural cultural diversity um, based on nationality or background, I think is a place that schools do a lot of work. Um, I think things around gender is something that always feels safe, um, though it tends to be specifically on binary gender, so men and women or boys and girls. Um, I think they're, you know, when schools focus on, let's do this thing for like our, our girl students, or let's focus on, I think most people are like, yes, we should definitely do that. Um, so I think those areas are quite thriving. Um, I think there is that are challenge, um, obviously talking about uh, queer things, um, supporting trans students. Uh, when you start talking about uniforms and sports teams and bathrooms, like then people start getting like, oh, okay, this is too hard. We don't know what to do. It's mm. too big. We can't tackle it. What about, you know, intervention from other places? What if parents complain? So I think that is an area um, that schools continue to struggle with. I think um, religion is sort of hit or miss in terms of how do we support different religious groups, I think uh, a lot of schools sort of struggle with what that can look like. And I think honestly, a lot of international schools struggle with how do we, you know, we might be an institution that is sort of like based in sort of like either a Western curriculum or we're a school that originates from wherever yep. we have connections to certain countries. And I think schools sometimes find it hard to move away from that. So it can feel like even though we have tons of students from everywhere, we're still catering to whatever the name of our school, you know, so there's like Australian International School, there's Canadian International School, there's a German one, there's a French one. I think they tend to sort of not realize how much they're catering just to that, which of course creates this interesting question because, okay, is the development of the school for people who are living in Singapore, maybe originating from those countries? Yeah. And if you're encouraging the diversity and really love having students from everywhere, how do we reconcile those two things without those other students feeling left out. So I think that is a challenge um, as well. And maybe the last thing I'll say, I think again, the sort of actualizing in a sort of cohesive school-wide way is something I've noticed has been more of a challenge for mm -hmm. people. I think I'll, like when I go and do trainings, for instance, I think all the individuals there are like, yes, I see how I'm going to do restorative circles in my classroom. But it's not necessarily translated into a school-wide initiative um, to do X, Y, or Z, and I think that that tends to come from sort of the fear from the, the risk-averseness that I mentioned before. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so why should schools uh, tackle this um, in their everyday practices? Yeah, for me, I think, I mean, the obvious answer, right, is just that because it's about the students, because the students have different identities and the students have different needs, and so I think if schools are committed to saying every student who comes into our institution is going to receive the same education, then they need to be doing these kinds of things because there are students who are experiencing bullying because of their race, bullying because of the language they speak, um, you know, exclusion from social activities because of whatever thing. 
So I think that there is this real need to make sure that all students are feeling affirmed. I think also schools sometimes can be the haven for students mm. because maybe they're experiencing something negative at home yeah. or sort of broadly in society. And so schools can be that place that a student can really express themselves um, and talk about these kinds of things. So I think it is important for schools, again, not to just state our mission is that we're inclusive mm. or our mission. I see lots of missions and values and mm. visions that are like, we respect everyone in this intercultural, interconnected, whatever place in Singapore. And that's great. But then what is the actualization of that so that students really feel like they belong, like they're accepted, and that they're specifically sort of um, affirmed. Yes. And there's tons and tons of research, you know, that you can look up for basically any underrepresented group that says they do less well in school <laughs> unless yep. they are being given that specific support. Um, and for me, again, that's why the importance of the specificity is always necessary. I always tell teachers, like, you can't just stand in front of your class and say, you can talk to me about anything and I'm open to any conversation and I support all of you. To me, it's sort of, is, it's nice, but it sort of is meaningless because a student might be sitting there really waiting for them to say, um, you know, I have specific interest in, in supporting queer students or I have specific interest. I know a lot about learning disabilities mm. or I know a lot about the experience of being a racial minority, whatever mm. that might look like. And then students be like, oh, oh, okay. So I can go to Mr. Mrs. whoever so-and-so about that topic because they talked about it. And because people have different interests, then when there's that sort of habit of being able to talk about it, I think that is really helpful yes. um, for students. So I think that's, that's at the end of the day, it's the sort of basic reason, do it for the students, but I think it's the accurate reason that yes. students need this. And I think they, they do deserve it from, from us. And then again, then extending that to our colleagues as well, and extending the same empathy and care that we do to the students um, to our colleagues uh, and to ourselves as well, I think is also something that's um, really necessary and often goes overlooked in yeah. education. Uh, are there any projects you're currently working on that, uh, that you're excited about? Yes. Uh, two that come to mind. So one is that I'm working on developing uh, like resource guide, resource guide workbook things um, for each of my trainings, which right now I have like some sample agendas, some worksheets. Um, but I'm working for each sort of course that I offer or a specific type of training to develop like sort of like a, almost like a book. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that because I'm, I'm wanting to think about how do people not forget what we learned um, and have some sort of takeaway where like they were writing their notes and there's also reflection questions and there's also, you know, to do in the next month. Because um, I find basically, I always tell people at my trainings like, someone do something about this in the next two weeks or else it's done, yeah. it's over. <laughs> if you don't like schedule a meeting, you know, call whatever, you know, because I'll meet with places that say, all right, we're going to move forward with restorative justice as a school. Great. Someone get that on the yeah, calendar before I walk out of the door. <laughs> because I, and it's happened to me too, right? Like you forget about it, then it comes back over the summer and you're like, oh, right. So that's one thing I'm working on that to sort of help keep the conversation going. Uh, the second thing, sort of still just a, a, a speck in my mind, um, I'm thinking about sort of writing sort of like a white paper kind of thing on the status of inclusion in international schools in Singapore mm -hmm. and doing some interviews with folks and trying to figure out what is sort of the, what are some of the best practices that we're seeing and also what is the sort of standard, I guess, if there is a standard, of course, there's a lot of international schools, um, but I want to start doing something around that because there's such little research that you can find specifically, even in like all of ASEAN APAC region, it's really hard to find research on this kind of thing. So I'm thinking about sort of moving forward with that. I haven't written a research paper in a really long time. Huh. So 
we'll see how. Um, but I think those are the two things that I am most looking forward to um, in the next year, in addition to just continuing to develop new courses and new relationships um, and continue on with the relationships that I have. Fantastic. Now, if people want to reach out and uh, contact you, how can they go about doing that? Yes. So uh, one way is on my Instagram, which is at Trident Training and Consulting. And then my uh, email address is very simple. It's just Andrew um, at tridenttraining.co, not .com, uh, which is much more expensive, but I'm not there yet. Um, but also just my website, tridenttraining.co, um, is the best way. I have my Calendly, Calendly um, set up there, and there's a lot of, I basically make it impossible to not know how to contact me if you go to the website. You can WhatsApp me directly from there. Um, yeah, so anyway, any way that feels comfortable for people, and I'm always very happy to have introductory conversations or whatever people might need. Fantastic. Well, it's been great to have you on the program and really important uh, topic. Yeah. And I uh, hope we can catch up again in the future, but thanks very much for being yes. on Education Talks. Great. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Education Talks is an Ed Events production for the Ed Events community. You can keep up to date with the development of the community by registering on the website at ed.events.